0: Welcome to Worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship, I'm gonna invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6. We continue in our series through 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. We invite you to look along with us. Maybe you need a Bible. There's a Bible right in front of you. And in that pew Bible, you can turn to page 1021, and you're going to get to 1 John chapter 2. Danielle and I, along with two of our sons, had the privilege to be able to join uh, John Woods, our music and worship staff. Many of them were there also, and uh, over about 130 students in Northern Wells for our Chapel Choir Mission Tour. Boy, we had a a beautiful seat to be able to see God working in and through these students. Uh, They led in a variety of settings. They led in historic cathedrals, 13th century castles, they were able to lead in worship in elementary schools, in local churches, and God used the gift of music and their faithfulness in, in leading so beautifully to be able to provide a platform to build relationships, and many of those relationships that gave our students the opportunity to share their faith, and it was a beautiful thing to behold God using them I left with a word in mind, not that we as a church were just proud of our students, but church, I came back inspired by our students, the boldness of their faith. They they were leading out of what it actually looks to be found faithful as God's people. So we invite you back tonight at six o'clock as our chapel choir will have their chapel choir mission tour home concert. You'll get to hear a little bit more about what God did in and through them. We were serving in this breathtakingly beautiful country of Wells. You know, when you're driving, you would look to your right and you would see uh, mountains and you look to your left and you see the coastline of the Irish Sea. It's a place, Wells is, that has this rich history of revivals. In the early 20th century, 1904, 1905, there were revivals that, that swept across Wales and, and, and really, it had a incubational work that spread into Great Britain and spread even on the shores of the United States. It's a place now in the 21st century that the Christian percentage is around 2%. So it is a place that is a description that oftentimes comes up is it is post-Christian. And so Christianity is something that has been tried and found wanting by many people. That would be their perception. But we were there in Northern Wells with Welsh-speaking believers and chapels and churches who uh, loved the Lord and desire to serve him. And so it was beautiful to be able for our students along with us as adult sponsors to be able to rub shoulders with the extended body of Christ and to be able to serve alongside of them and to learn from them as we also as adults are able to learn from our students. Six o'clock tonight invites you back for our Chapel Choir home concert. It's gonna be, be a lot of fun and it's gonna be a great time of worship. So I hope you'll be back. Many of you were here last week, you weren't in Wells, and you heard a wonderful message from Dr. Gary Fenton, who uh, so many of you know faithfully served as a senior pastor here at Dawson for 25 years. And Dr. Fenton preached on 1 Thessalonians chapter five, a message of Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica about the importance of encouragement. Yesterday morning, I was listening to that message. I I was running and it just hit me how fitting it was that he was preaching that message because I've been your pastor now, for almost six years, and one of the most consistent and specific voices of encouragement in my life has been my predecessor, Dr. Gary Fenton. And I'm so thankful that he preached that message because he really exemplifies that message. And it was a wonderful call for all of us to live a life of an encouragement and the importance of that, so I'm grateful that he was able to preach last week, and I'm grateful to not only call him uh, my predecessor, but also to call him friend. And I know you are also. Uh, so many of you are able to call him friend, and we're grateful for Dr. Fenton and Altafay and their continued membership here at Dawson. So our task before us is First John chapter two, verses one through six. And this morning I'm preaching a message I've entitled, Accepting What You Don't Deserve. Accepting What You Don't Deserve. First John chapter 2, hear the word of the Lord. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him. But does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Christ. Christ. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This morning, I want you to see in these six verses, four rich truths of God's word. The first of which is found in the first verse, which is simply the source of our defense. Hear it again, my dear children. My little children in the ESV. It's a pastoral endearment that John gives to the Christians there in Ephesus. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. As followers of Christ, we're called to pursue holiness. We can choose to not walk in sin. But, but John realizes with this conjunction, but if anyone does sin. One way to translate that is, but when when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Notice what John's doing. He is putting us with this description of Jesus as our advocate. He is, he is welcoming us in, into a, a courtroom of sorts. You don't have to go to Cumberland School of Law. You don't have to be a graduate of Alabama Law School. You don't have to read To Kill a Mockingbird Lately and have Atticus Finch in your mind. You don't have to have a John Grisham novel in your back pocket to to get to what John is doing. And what is John doing here? He's, He's bringing us into the courtroom with four primary characters. We've got God the Father who is the judge, We have ourselves, all of humanity who are the defendant. We have the prosecuting attorney who is Satan himself. And Revelation chapter 12 tells us that one of his descriptions is he is the accuser. We need an advocate. We need a defense attorney. And here John says, we have one. He is the righteous one, Jesus Christ. It's almost as if, John wants us to see Satan coming in, this ferocious, tenacious prosecuting attorney, and he's got two brief cases in hand, and he's got file folders after file folders where he just presents all of this evidence of our sinfulness, and he starts he starts when we're young and he goes to all of our life. And he says, here are all the things that she did that she shouldn't have done. And we get to the very end of it. And we say to ourselves, finally, he's finished. And he pulls out the other briefcase and slams it down. It says, now all the things that he should have done that he didn't do. And one after the other, we hear this load of evidence that the accuser brings before the judge And it's in this moment that we see that we are guilty as charged. We're all sinners. None of us is righteous. Not one of us. And we stand in light of all the things that we said that we shouldn't have said. And all the things that we thought that we shouldn't have thought. All the things that we wish we would have done that we didn't do. And it just cascades upon us. One after the other. Verdict is there before us, guilty as charged. The punishment is separation from a holy, perfect God. Not only separation now, but separation eternally. And before the Father, he he wraps his gavel on the, the courtroom there. It's in that moment that we have our advocate who steps in. Jesus Christ, the righteous one to defend us. Our case. I guess I was 13 years old when I first heard a message on this, maybe this passage, I don't remember the passage, I remember the image. It was an image that struck me as strange, it was an image that was confusing to me because I misconstrued what was being described in this passage here. I heard God as a grumpy judge who was immensely disappointed with me and looked down upon me and said, David Eldridge, here you are again. What in the world am I going to do with you? I heard Jesus Christ as a reluctant defense to us who had to sort of twist the arm of his heavenly father to be able to say to him, I know, I know he's done it, I know he's done it, but it's going to get better. So I misconstrued this, but notice how Jesus is described. What is the merit of our defense? Is it that Jesus forgives us? Is it that Jesus is showing that the father needs to be merciful? No, the the merit of the defense is his righteousness. So our defense in light of our sinfulness is ultimately the righteous life and the sacrificial death of Jesus. Our merit is wholly placed in him, not in us. And if you miss this, you you miss the heart of the gospel. And so many do, it's really easy to miss this. So many of us go through life thinking to ourselves, we need the forgiveness of Jesus, but we also have got to do our part. We also need some accolades and we also need some accomplishments. We also need to do enough and go enough and give enough and to show up and that the end of our life, if you put a little bit of what Jesus done and and has done for us and a lot of what we've done, that that ultimately would justify us in the end and that's just not the gospel. It is his righteousness that is our defense in light of a holy God, our defense is he lived the life that we could not live, a life of perfection, and he died the death that we deserve to die. He is our hope. He is our defense. There's a Zach Bryan song, country music artist. It's a like kind of perfect country music song. it has got all kinds of things in it that, you know, are country music tropes, themes. He talks about the end of his own life. And he says, I know I'm bound to die one day. When I reach those golden gates, I pray that I can say I did the best that I can. And one day to walk with my mother and the dearly departed. Every time I listen to that song, I think to myself, boy, he's got so much right. I mean, he he gets so much right. Every one of us, we we're bound to know that one day we are going to die. And we want to reach those golden gates. And we want to, we want to sit with our dearly departed be it our mother our father our brother our sister uh, aunt our uncle grandparents grandchildren sons and daughters we we want that but you my friend have something better to say than I pray that I did the best that I can that's not enough that's not our defense let me give you some better lyrics this morning Let me give you some lyrics that that you need to sing when you come to those those heavenly gates. You need to sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Foul I, fountain fly. Rock of ages, cleft to me. Let me hide myself in thee. This is the beauty of the gospel, that when you get to heaven, what you don't say in that moment is, is I did the best I can. What you say in that moment is I'm with him. I'm with him. His righteousness, his death is my defense. This is the source of your defense. This is the source of Of my defense. But not only do we see the source in verse 2, we see in this very passage the nature of our defense. Notice in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big word on Sunday morning. It's a five syllable word on Sunday morning. It's a word that sometimes we shrink back from. It's a word that we think is a little confusing. It's easy to define. Propitiation is the description of Jesus's sacrifice for us as sinners before a holy God. This is the description here. It actually means a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. This rubs people, especially in the last 30 to 40 years, the wrong way. And to hold to this teaching sometimes feels as if you're swimming against a current that's going the opposite direction. And one of the reasons is, is we misconstrue what this is teaching here. We think of propitiation and we think of a really angry God who is very temperamental and frustrated, but that's not the nature of this teaching here. Actually, the wrath of God and the justice of God are corollaries to his perfect love and his perfect holiness. If God, as the Bible teaches us, is perfectly holy, of course his response to sin is opposition to it. So yes, we can say God is Hates sin because he knows what sin does to us. He loves you so much. He cares for you so perfectly that he wants you not to walk in the bondage of sin because he knows that sin is a thief. Do you know that? I mean, it's, sin trades on a false currency where it steals from you, the joy of God and the peace of God. And it puts as a replacement in your hand, grief and loss over time. It always does it, it always does it. And so the wrath of God and the justice of God, they are corollaries to the perfect holiness and love of God. So we as sinners, yes, we're objects of the wrath of a holy God and Jesus upon the cross, he drank fully the very penalty of our sin and he absorbed upon himself that very punishment upon the cross and he drank the cup. This is the whole essence of, of Jesus pleading with the father, if there's any other way, let there be. I, he's saying in this moment, I can't drink of this cup and the what he's drinking of is the very wrath of God that he knows is going to be placed upon him as the perfect loving son absorbs that wrath in that moment. And as we as objects of wrath That wrath is placed upon Jesus in our stead, in our place. He has paid it all. Now, I don't know what we're going to be singing 200 years from now. Well, we're not going to be here, right? So I don't know what the heavenly chorus is going to be like that we're going to be singing in heaven. Maybe some of these songs that we're singing now, we're going to continue to be singing in heaven. But if the Lord tarries his return, 200 years from now, the church of Jesus Christ most likely is going to be singing a song that we sing right now. And it is, it is a beautiful hymn. It's a modern hymn that talks about this beautiful truth till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied and Christ alone for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ. I live. This Christian is the nature of your defense. The source of your defense, the nature of defense. Now let's look at in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, let's look at the extent of your defense. In this passage here that is a theologically loaded passage, I hope you're seeing this here. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also, do you see this, for the sins of the whole world. A few years back, I was eating with a friend of mine who wanted to talk to me about this passage and other passages because he was very persuaded that the blood of Jesus Christ is so effective and effectual across the world that that those who believe in Jesus will be saved. And also those who deny Jesus, reject Jesus, they also will be saved. And he pointed to passages like this passage. And he's not the first person to do that. There is, there is a teaching that goes back, not just to the 20th century, but goes back to the second, third century. Origen, pastor, theologian, he was one of the first so-called universalists that looked at passages like this and said that the blood of Jesus will cover the sins of the whole world, which means everybody in the end will be saved. This was popularized more recently. Some of you might remember this. There was a former pastor by the name of Rob Bell who wrote a book that he titled Love Wins. And the idea is that the love of God wins in such a way that even those who reject Jesus will in the end be saved. I do not believe that that's what the Bible teaches. And I do believe that goes contrary to the teachings of scripture and the teachings of the church. But oftentimes people will look at this passage and interpret it out of context. This is a good example. When we read the Bible, we have to read the Bible in context. And if you take a a passage of scripture and you rip it out of its immediate context, you make it stand on two faulty legs here, you can make it say about whatever you want it to say. Every heresy of the Christian church is based upon some passage ripped out of its immediate context. And this is a good example of doing that. It ignores what John says in verse six. It ignores what John says in verse eight. It ignores what John says in verse 10 of chapter one. It makes an internal contradiction between what John is saying, verse six, look with me. He says in your copy of God's word that there are those who walk in darkness. He says in verse eight, there are those who don't have the truth. He says in verse 10, that there are those who the word is not in them. So he's not one breath later, in chapter two, verse one, immediately contradicting himself by saying, no big deal. It doesn't matter if you have the word. It doesn't matter if you walk in the truth. It doesn't matter if you don't have the darkness. Of course, they're believers and unbelievers and they are eternal implications for not believing. What John is saying in this passage is really important. He is not saying that everyone in the end will be saved. What he is saying is is that the blood of Jesus extends not just to the Christians that John was writing to in the first century in Ephesus, but the blood of Jesus extends to all. The whole world. Now, of course, there are gonna be some who do not believe. Of course, there are gonna be some who reject the gift of salvation. But what John is saying is, if you grow up as a Buddhist in Bangladesh, or you grow up as a Baptist in Birmingham, or if you grow up as a spiritualist in New Delhi and grow up as an atheist in New York City, the blood of Jesus Christ flows to you, my friend. For God so loved the world that he would give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, all the world. This is just a good message to keep in mind that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've thought, no matter the sins, that haunts you and followed you into the sanctuary, Jesus died for you and salvation is offered to you. That gift is extended to you through his love and it's extended to the world. But our question is this, will we receive that? So what we can say is, is that the death of Jesus is sufficient for all, but it only becomes effective for the some who believe, not all believe. There will be those who reject, but the blood of Jesus flows to you this morning. The extent of our defense, the nature of our defense, the source of our defense. And finally this morning, the proof of our defense. What what does this mean? What, What practical implications does this have for your life and my life? If we're followers of Jesus, when does it show up in your life and my life? Well, notice, that John clearly says, verse three, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his, do you see that? His commandments. He continues, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever Keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now you've got to hold these things together, and we 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 uh, can do this. These are tensions within the Christian gospel here that we are saved solely by the righteousness of Jesus. But when the seed of salvation is planted in your heart and my heart, the fruit is going to grow and the fruit is going to be seen. You're not saved by your works. I'm not saved by my works. But as John Calvin, the great Genevan reformer said, that while we're not saved by our works, saving faith works. Shows up. It shows up in the workplace. It shows up in our neighborhood. It shows up in our family. This is called the fruit of the spirit. This is what Paul is talking about when he talks about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. This is the fruit of the spirit. This is keeping his commandments. This is walking in step in such a way that other people can see it. Now we don't all see the fruit. We don't all walk in uniformity, that we all talk the same way as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, there, there is in some respects that the fruit of the spirit is going to show up in different ways. If you're 83 years old or 13 years old, the the, the joy and the peace and the patience, it is going to show up in a different way. Sometimes our temperaments based upon where we're born, the fruit of the spirit and Northern Wells and Welsh speaking villages are going to have a little bit of a different attitude than Birmingham, Alabama and our 13-year-olds. But we can see enough of the similarities to say, I see the family resemblance. I see that there's, there's something in you that's different. I see it by the way you walk. I've got two younger brothers that are in heaven, Michael and Matthew when we were growing up, it was oftentimes remarked that Michael and Matthew did not look like me and they didn't. Sandy blonde hair, blue eyes. So they were distinguishing factors, but we, we, we were brothers and they were bigger than me. They had broader shoulders. They're actually taller than I am now and I was them. But one thing that oftentimes people would say is, is uh, you and Michael and Matthew, I can always tell that your brothers, when I wa- see you guys walking, we, we had a Eldridge strut, I guess. That <laughs> our gait. I mean, I've got, you noticed this, I've got sort of like this pigeon toe thing going on. And, and, and I've had that, and I've always had that. And, and they had it too. And you know who else had it? Jimmy Eldridge. Jimmy Eldridge is our dad. And so his distinct walk gets passed on to David and it gets passed on to Michael and it gets passed on to Matthew. And so you can see this family resemblance in our gait. You can see this family resemblance in the way that we walk. And when people say, boy, you walk alike, I say, yeah, I know, I'm I'm his, Jimmy Eldridge. I walk like my dad. Do you know if you're a follower of Jesus that you've got a family walk? You walk like your father. You walk with love and joy and peace. And when you walk in your workplace and you walk in your neighborhood and you walk at home over time, people, especially those who, who are skeptical of Christianity or especially those who uh, are not followers of Christ, they over time can see that there's something different about them. And, and when that occurs, it gives us an opportunity to say, well, it happened just this week. We're flying from Atlanta to Manchester, eight hour flight, most of our team was in the back. I, along with some others, were in the very back of the plane. And as we landed, uh, John, our, our worship pastor, very wisely and very politely and kindly said to our team, stay put. Let everybody else off the plane first. So that gave me a good bit of time with Donna. Donna was the flight attendant that was you know, um, there for that eight-hour flight on, on my row. And so as I was standing in the back of the plane, I started talking to Donna and we were all wearing as a team, these red shirts. So all 158 of the adult sponsors and the students, we had these shirts on. And if you were a mile away from us, you could see us. And if you were three miles away from us, you could hear us coming. Sir. <laughs> but she said to me a couple of things that you as a church need to hear. She said, these... Students are so polite. But she didn't stop there. She said, There is a joy to these students. Now, that word that she used is not an accidental word. It is a word that comes from a deep part of these students who are followers of Jesus as ninth graders and 10th graders and 11th graders and 12th graders who are in this place. So that cumulatively as this white attendant is able to care and to be able to make sure everybody's good and going in the right direction, that the words that come to her mind are the way that they walk in the distinctive way and a part of that is joy. And she continued and she said, I've got a teenage son. And he doesn't have that joy. And don't we pray, don't we pray that when we walk, when we walk around neighbors, when we walk around those at restaurants in just a few moments, that what they will pick up is not that they'll know us by the t-shirts that we wear, and the attire of Sunday morning worship, but they will know us by the way that we walk. And they will say, hey, there's just something different about your walk. And it's then we're able to say, hey, let me tell you a little bit about my father. Let us pray. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.